Listener Production. Hey, Tom Tilly with you for the briefing. If you've got hiking to Machu Picchu in Peru on your bucket list for this year, you might want to listen to our briefing today. It's been sort of a touch and go situation in which they're trying to get tourists essentially from a very small um, village nearby the ruins back to Cusco where they can get them safely out of the country. So we'll find out what's happening in Peru, how long the Inca Trail might be closed for as we get the lowdown on the unrest that's killed dozens of people and left tourists stranded. That is in the second half of the episode. First, today's headlines, for which I'm joined by Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, January 25. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has flown to Alice Springs in a bid to address the big jump in crime and alcohol-related violence there. He was joined by several other Northern Territory and federal politicians, including Indigenous MPs and senators, and announced new restrictions on alcohol, making it banned on Mondays and Tuesdays and only available to buy between 3 and 7 p.m., on other days of the week. Yeah, and each person in town can only make one alcohol purchase per person per day and the measures will come into effect immediately and last for at least the next three months. He also announced a Central Australian Regional Controller. Um, They'll coordinate the response between the different governments, the federal and the territory government. The pressure had been building on Anthony Albanese to show leadership on this issue. Um, Peter Dutton was making a lot of noise about it, and that came off the back of the shocking crime figures that came out last week. So the Northern Territory Police crime stats show there'd been a 43% increase in assaults over the last year in Alice Springs, 53% increase in alcohol-related assaults. Commercial break-ins and home invasions had also jumped by more than 50% Mm. in the last year. So going about daily life there would be terrifying for a lot of people. And part of the reason for this is the relaxing of alcohol restrictions halfway through last year. So that's now looking like a big mistake. Yeah, so they were the end of the intervention era federal laws. So they Mm. came to an end. I think some of the criticism has been that when they lapsed, the the Territory government didn't put anything in place. There were some opt-in things, but essentially like you could opt in as a community, but it was it was open slather. And we know that there is a lot of alcohol-related harm and what the evidence shows, limit the supply of alcohol or lift the, the floor price of alcohol. And that has an impact on some of these crimes and social issues. I think the other significant thing here is you also need to address the underlying issues mm-hmm. and put funding towards some of the underlying yep. issues, whether that is um, youth unemployment, social housing. It needs to be Indigenous-led. It needs to be culturally sensitive. Mm. Yes, alcohol is a big factor. Limiting the sale of alcohol is a part of the solution, um, but I think it's a little bit simplistic to think that it is the only solution. And I'd be concerned or critical of the coalition's suggestions that we need an AFP or army presence because we know in marginalised communities sending in extra law enforcement often backfires. Well, the Territory Government already did. They sent in... um extra reinforcements in December, 45 extra police, and most of those are still on the ground. So sending in the army has a a real intensity about it. Um, But I I think an increased police presence is a very good thing uh, to protect the citizens of Alice Springs. I mean, yes and no, because extra police presence, given the history of relationships with authorities in marginalised communities, especially remote communities, it generally hasn't led to better outcomes. So I guess it depends who whose perspective this comes from. 
Yeah, I'll have to agree to disagree that in Alice Springs, an extra place would be good right now. And a seventh Qantas flight has gotten into trouble in what's been a very bad week for Qantas. So the Perth to Kalgoorlie flight was forced to turn around yesterday afternoon due to what's being described as mechanical issues. It was in the air for about 50 minutes before returning to Perth Airport. So this comes a day after the Adelaide to Perth flight was forced to turn back because of incomplete paperwork. There was also that Sydney to Fiji flight that turned around, um, the Auckland to Sydney flight that had a Mayday call, and three other incidents. So Qantas have said there's not a real problem here, that turnbacks happen quite regularly. They say they average about 60 a year, but this is six in a week. So yeah. that's almost six times their average. Yeah, so by their own measure, um, it's not good enough. And remember when the big Qantas crisis was not getting your luggage in time? I mm. reckon that pales in comparison to some of the problems they're having now. Well, it's a it's a build-up of many problems mm. with the airline in what's been a very tough return to business post-COVID. So you really hope the mechanical issues are <laughs> top of the pyramid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you want all those other things sorted as well, including prices to come down. Seven people have died in a second mass shooting in California, just 48 hours apart. A man killed his former co-workers in the coastal city of Half Moon Bay yesterday in two different agricultural locations and all the victims were Chinese-American farm workers. We saw the suspect inside of the um, vehicle laying there in the front seat and then um, also um, was able to see a weapon. That's San Mateo Country Sheriff Christina Corpus speaking to the US Today Show. The 67-year-old suspect, Zhao Chun-Li, was arrested after driving to a police station. And, and Tom, it's the mm. third mass shooting to take place in California in just eight days. 11 people were killed after Lunar New Year celebrations at a ballroom dance studio in Monterey mm. Park on Saturday night. Um, and just over a week ago, six people, including a teenage mother and her baby, were shot dead at a property in central California. Um, police say that particular incident was gang-related. Yeah, but the other two have some similarities, don't they? So you've got that one that was gang-related, but the other two were relatively old Chinese men, yes. um, 67 and 72, killing people that seemed to be within their, their own community. And that, I guess that's what surprised me because when I saw the initial reporting of the Monterey Park shooting, it was across Instagram pages of Stop Asian Hate. Like it was in that context of mm. this is how significant these celebrations are. My first reflex was this is a this is an Asian hate crime. Uh, but yeah, what is peculiar is it um, it seems like the alleged gunmen are Asian and older men. Um, in fact, the Monterey Park gunman is the oldest to carry out a mass shooting in recent history, like since the seventies. Right. So, a couple of strange things happening there. So there's a meeting of the key dating apps, Grindr, Bumble and Tinder with uh, government uh, figures today, all about tackling concerning sexual violence figures. So the communications minister, Michelle Rowland, has called the meeting after new research came out revealing really concerning stats about online dating. Um, the Institute of Criminology study found that three in four respondents had faced sexual violence through dating apps in the last five years. So that's a shocking number. Mm. Um, so clearly they want to do as much as they can to stop dangerous people using dating apps to 
basically commit horrific crimes. And, and sexual harassment was the most reported form of that sexual violence, and that can be abusive and threatening language. Sexual images were also common. Um, but just a week or so ago, there was actually a woman who was murdered after uh, recently meeting and dating someone that she, mm. she met online in one of these dating apps. So it can go from anything from unwanted sexual pictures being sent to you to the much mm. far, far more sinister and devastating impacts of, 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 of murder. Yeah, well, I'm sure one of the ideas they'll discuss is who they let on these platforms and how much of their background mm. record, um, criminal record, they need to submit in order to, you know, actually use these platforms. There was also that announcement in New South Wales in the lead up to the election where the government's proposing to create a hotline where you can call up and see if your partner has a history of sexual violence-related crimes. I mean, this is a really interesting one to see how it would play out because there was a pilot for a couple of years and the uptake hasn't been huge. Like, I don't imagine how many people call and go, hey, I'm seeing this new guy called love, yeah. David. Like, he's really cool. I like him. He's a chef. His name's David Smith. Like, has he ever bashed up any of his past girlfriends? Like, I'm just, I'm not sure how, what the uptake is going to be given that in the past it hasn't been wonderful. But, you know, anything to try and stem. Um, well, maybe when you hit it. You don't do that in the honeymoon period, but maybe if, if you start to notice some red flags, that's when you make the phone call. And Antoinette, um, the, the next story is really a result of something you've done. You called out Kylie Jenner about the name change for her son. So she yes. had a son called Wolf, who's one, changed yep. his name to Air. Yes, and look, this is a fine journalistic moment for me, um, Tom, because after a bit of investigation, what I was able to deduce um, was that the name and the way it's spelled A-I-R-E actually translates, or the way we would say it in Arabic, A-D, um, is like my penis, um, and usually said in a derogatory way, like take my penis or whatever. And so I put out a tweet going, um, should somebody tell Kylie Jenner that she's renamed her kid my penis in Arabic? Um, and, you know, the internet has found it hilarious. And so it, you've made headlines. I have made headlines. Me, a penis and Kylie Jenner. So has she Has she responded? Well, what all the articles have then said is now Kylie Jenner has since come out and uh, had clarified that it's actually spelt uh, pronounced air like billionaire and not airy. So it's not my penis. It's a billionaire. Anyway, it's just, it's hilarious. It's a stupid name, I think. Um, but <laughs> how the child's name is Stormy. Half the internet is saying she should now rechange her name. Others are Again. saying, who gives a shit what it means in Arabic? Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's made me and a few other people chuckle. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you tomorrow in a special uh, January 26th edition of The Briefing. Um, right now, Katrina's about to jump back into the studio as we look at what's been going on in Peru. All right, now to our briefing topic on the violence in Peru that's closed the Inca Trail, stranding lots of tourists, including Aussies. And Katrina Blowers, you actually tried to get there once and were stopped as well. Yeah, Machu Picchu has always been on my list. I'd love to go there. I got so close. We've been to Lima, we've been up to Cusco, but then there was a landslip and we were stopped from going in. So oh. when I heard earlier this year that there were heaps of troubles with tourists being stranded up there and not being able to get in or out, um, yeah, I thought, gosh, that's, that's so tragic for them. That's visited by mm. one and a half million people every year. The government says it is closed 
closed indefinitely for right now to protect visitors and locals. Yeah, as you say, there's been protests there since December and they've got increasingly violent. So far, over 50 people have been killed and now it's hit this point where they've closed their most famous tourist destination. So we'll get the backstory on the protests, the bloodshed and what it means for tourism. Um, We're joined by Neil Gardino, who's a freelance journalist who works with the ABC, BBC and Reuters. He's been reporting from Peru for the last six years. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. So what's going on at the Inca Trail right now? Are there tourists still there? Are there protests taking place in Cusco and the areas where the tourists would normally be? Oh, well, actually, right now, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the demonstrations, the protests within the last few days have been concentrated here in Lima. In Cusco, there are around 400 or so um, tourists that were um, stranded along the Machu Picchu Pueblo after some of the rail lines were um, allegedly sabotaged by by protesters. So when did that ban kick in to close the trail and were there tourists actually on the trail at the time? Well, this has been sort of an ongoing situation since around December 7th or so. This was when um, former President Pedro Castillo attempted a self-coup. He attempted to shut down Congress and um, ruled by decree. Within days, protests erupted um, throughout the country. And then in January, they started to heat up in Cusco. Um, You know, this is a city that receives, you know, millions of tourists a year. Obviously, the famed Inca ruins of of Machu Picchu are not far from the city. The site itself was formally closed by the National Park Service, at which point it's been sort of a touch-and-go situation in which they're trying to get tourists essentially from a very small um, village nearby the ruins back to Cusco where they can get them safely out of the country. Right. So they're still actually stuck there out on the trail. Some tourists are still stuck out on the trail. I mean, this is a very large, expansive mountainous region of the country. And so tourists have sort of a number of ways uh, visiting the ruins. I mean, they can take several day treks through the sacred valley to get to the Incan citadel of Machu Picchu, or they can take trains. And, you know, um, the vast majority of tourists coming to Machu Picchu via two um, state and private consortium owned um, rail lines. And so essentially they move thousands of tourists a day up to the Incan ruins. And, you know, to have this site shut down, it hasn't just shut down and stayed shut down. They've attempted to reopen, but as, you know, the tensions and the the protests sort of ebb and flow in the Cusco area, they've had to start and stop, start and stop again. So you said that the the protests did ramp up from the capital in Lima to Cusco in January. So were, were tourists directly at risk of violence or was it more of a case of the protests disrupting the infrastructure, in particular the rail line? Yes, it's definitely the latter. So, I mean, what you're seeing is this is an internal conflict. Uh, you know, it's been simmering for the past several years because there's such gridlock in Congress. There's such a distrust in public institutions and there's such infighting within Congress that, um, you know, this latest sort of move by Pedro Castillo in early December brought people out onto the streets and, you know, it initially started in in Lima, but then it became clear that this was a problem that was sort of mostly impacting the highland regions. These are marginalized parts of the country. 
with large indigenous, you know, Quechua and Aymara populations. And so as they started to protest out onto the streets, not only in Cusco, but in Apurimac, Andahuaylas, you know, in cities and villages across the highlands, obviously Cusco being one of the largest cities in the country, you know, people started to congregate, protesters started to get out onto the streets. Tourists, uh, you know, were largely impacted in, in, in that, you know, in many instances, their vacations, their lifelong dream of visiting Machu Picchu, was those dreams were dashed because of the internal crisis. In some instances, that required that they walk, you know, many miles to get out of, of these conflict areas, um, you know, walked along the abandoned rail yards. And in some cases, even actually had to cross the border into Bolivia to kind of seek safe passage. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any tourists' lives were necessarily at risk throughout this conflict. So tell us a bit more about the president, the former president, Pedro Castillo. As you mentioned, he attempted to dissolve parliament to prevent an impeachment vote. What was he being impeached for? And what, I guess, are some of those deeper tensions you alluded to earlier in Peru that he's really tapped into? From the very beginning, when Pedro Castillo took power, um, you know, he won by a very narrow vote, around 4,000 votes or so. Um, and, you know, from the very beginning, the opposition uh, was calling his victory fraud. They were calling electoral fraud. As his presidency unfolded, you know, he was very quickly mired in many uh, different types of criminal investigations, um, you know, graft, influence peddling. He was actually most gravely uh, accused of being a ringleader uh, within his cabinet that was uh, receiving illegal kickbacks from various construction companies and such. You know, there were two impeachment votes against him um, in 2021. And then finally, um, in December, there was a third impeachment vote against him. And instead of uh, going forward with the vote, rather, in order to prevent the vote, he essentially staged a self-coup. One of the high courts uh, deemed his move in, uh, unconstitutional. And within hours, he was impeached and he was arrested as he was allegedly en route to the Mexican embassy to seek political asylum. So you've talked about these underlying tensions, the the polarization in Peruvian society, the distrust of institutions. What's actually going on in the lives of ordinary Peruvians? What are they struggling with? Why are they so fired up about the machinations of their political system? So this is a country that's reeling from uh, food insecurity, inflation and soaring gas prices. So this is a population that, uh, you know, just beyond just the daily uh, question of how they will feed themselves and their families, uh, there's just a, a real fatigue from what is, you know, sort of increasingly just political dysfunction. And we're talking about, you know, years of political dysfunction. It, it really all sort of came to a head on December 7th when Pedro Castillo attempted to um, shut down Congress and rule by decree. So given how popular Machu Picchu is as a tourist destination, something like one and a half million people visit that site every year. And I guess the the revenue from tourism that the government would rely on, how long do you think that site will remain closed? And what if you're planning a trip? Uh, anyone listening to this who's got a trip planned there this year, how long do you reckon they should hold off for? You know, that's the million dollar question right now. We're waiting to see how this political crisis plays out. There is uh, movement 
in Congress right now. Um, Congress is currently trying to agree on a date to hold new elections. That's one of the key demands of protesters, that new elections be held. Unfortunately, Congress is eyeing 2024 for the elections, although a vast majority of protesters, political analysts, and just everyday people here in, in, in the Capitol. That's what people want. They want immediate new elections. They want elections in 2023. Obviously, this is a lucrative uh, region in Cusco and especially Machu Picchu, where, as you said, a million, a million and a half tourists come each year from all over the world. It's a wonder of the world, and it is a staggeringly beautiful place. And so I would advise you, you know, listeners, if they are planning a trip, Hold off on buying your tickets just yet. I would also stress that you are not uh, necessarily in jeopardy of of getting caught up in the violence, assuming you you know comply by local laws, stay away from the protests. Um, and those that have tickets to Machu Picchu and, and Cusco, you know, it's not advisable to travel right now. It seems that tensions are coming to a head here, and so I would sort of hold off and see if we can reschedule those trips. But the sense I'm getting is that this is temporary, that it's not a fundamental shift in, you know, Peruvian attitudes towards this tourism spot and, and the amount of people coming or anything fundamental about that industry itself. It's it's more the sort of political ups and downs on a local national level. Sure. It's certainly a political impasse right now that is, you know, hurting not just the tourism sector, but the energy and mining mm. sectors, you know, but, but in terms of Machu Picchu, you know, the government knows uh, the, uh, the the culture ministry knows the bottom line is is that you know order needs to be restored uh, you know in order to bring back all of these sorts of um of, of services and to and, and machu picchu and, and and cusco is like i say a lucrative source of revenue for for the country and so you know i would imagine that you know this is very very worrying and uh you know they're going to try everything they can to sort of uh take care of this political situation so you know not only tourism but other revenue sources for the national mm. vital to the national income can be um can return i mean given this is such a high profile shutdown it's it's what peru is most famous for to most people around the world does it then serve as a bit of a, a wake-up call for how bad things have got there in peru and potentially be a a catalyst for sorting this out yeah, you know, one can hope that this conflict will address deep-rooted um, marginalization and, and, and racism and, and, and all of these fundamental issues that Peru has uh, struggled with in its 200 years um, as, a, as a nation. In the meantime, we'll, we'll have to sort of wait and see. Um, but as I said, the interest uh, that Machu Picchu uh, and the brand that it represents nationally um, is very vital to the country. And it is the country where, you know, the majority of Peruvians that I've spoken with, you know, in my travels throughout the Amazon and the Andes regions don't have never even been to Machu Picchu because uh, it's seen as a, an, as an expense that is just too, too, too pricey. I mean, they can't afford to even go there. So um, in many ways, the infrastructure and the image of Machu Picchu is, is in many ways uh, geared towards international travel, right? And so to have it shut down is very worrying for the authorities. 
That was Neil Gardino, a journalist with the ABC, BBC and Reuters, who's reporting on the ground in Peru. And Tom, I just checked the latest mm. travel advice. Uh, it's yellow, which means exercise a degree of caution. So the Australian government is not saying not to go there. Mm. It's just saying reconsider your need to go there. But it does sound pretty heavy, particularly in areas like Lima right now. Well, that fits with what Neil was saying, um, where he said that you can travel there and avoid the protests and the violence and be relatively safe, but the real risk is whether you have the trip that you want to have. And, you know, for many people, yeah. given this is such a big, beautiful experience, this is something they would have saved up their money and their time for potentially for years to get there. So don't want to end up in the situation you're in, caused by natural circumstances, where you get there and end up disappointed. <laughs> It is a beautiful country. The food is amazing, but i got to say, it is heartbreaking to get so close and still not see Machu Picchu. Listener.